Welcome to the podcast States and Migration in Europe. Today, we are discussing the, the question of um, Ludwig van Mises and immigration restrictions. That's a topic that came in a number of uh, recent um, debates, uh, quite lively debates. Um, and I am very glad to have uh, to discuss this question, uh, Dr. Phil Magnes. Uh, so hello, Phil. <laughs> uh, thank hello, you, thank you for being here. It's very great to, to, to have you here and to, to be able to, to discuss this question that has been um, that has led to some misrepresentations on the thought of Ludwig von Mises about immigration restrictions. So Ludwig von Mises is one of the main uh, members of the Austrian School of Economics, one that evolved in the around the University of Vienna uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. And along with Mises, it includes uh, Karl Menger, famous for his uh, theory of value, and uh, Eugène Bumbaverk as well, uh, who work on the, the question of time preference and was the advisor of uh, Ludwig von Mises. Uh, von Mises is also famous for uh, his criticism of uh, socialism uh, for not having a method of economic calculation. But uh, so here we are interested in the, um, the criticism of uh, Ludwig von Mises about immigration restrictions. So, uh, Phil, uh, what was uh, the criticism of uh, Ludwig von Mises about immigration restrictions? Yeah. So recently, there have been uh, several papers that have come out, uh, in particular coming from uh, Quinn Slobodian, who's a historian in the United States, basically charging Ludwig von Mises with being a precursor to uh, all the arguments we see today for restricting immigration, for uh, locking down borders. Although it comes with a caveat because they also recognize in several Mises' writings that he is in favor of a liberal open immigration policy, especially in the early 20th century. Uh, so it's a, it's a very weird type of an argument because he never really comes out against immigration itself, but they try to infer that there are building blocks of an anti-immigration argument in some of the things that he's claiming. And one of the points that I make is I go through the history of Mises's work all the way back to the 1910s. So he writes a, uh, a book after World War I called Nation, State, and Economy, where he addresses the situation in Europe, um, including barriers, obstacles that have emerged to immigration. And you can follow this theme in his work all the way till the post-war period. So when he's writing Human Action and uh, and some of his other uh, responses, also once he's gotten over to the United States, because he, he's a migrant himself, uh, he flees Austria from the Nazis, uh, is stationed in Switzerland for uh, most of World War II, and then moves to the United States and takes up home at uh, New York University, where uh, he basically ends his career. But he's writing about immigration through that entire period, and his argument is the classical liberal uh, case in favor of removing barriers and restrictions to immigration, allowing a free flow of people, just as you ha you'd have a free flow of goods um, with trade. So he, he draws that analogy very directly and says that uh, uh, we encourage free trade because it allows for a better allocation of goods, maximizing comparative advantage, all the classical arguments there. And he says that free migration serves a similar uh, function, a similar economic purpose, and should be part of the liberal order. Yeah, yeah, indeed, that's that was his uh, dominant in um, in Mrs. Work. This idea that uh, the free movement of labor is a major force for the equalization of wages 
across countries. And he compares also in, in human action uh, Switzerland, which at the time Absolutely. was not that rich <laughs> as today, uh, with the United States. And, um, and also he, he was writing at the time of intense uh, trade protectionism and um, basically saying that, and also migration protectionism in the United States in the 1930s, and, and basically saying that these this were impediments to, to the equalization of, of, um, of, um, of wages, the reduction of international inequalities. So that's the standard, uh, the standard uh, liberal arguments in favor of free movement of people. So, yeah, I think the, 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 the the detractors of Mises are not disputing that he, he operates within this broad liberal framework. He, what they say, uh, as far as I've understood, is that there are some passages in his thought that would demonstrate that deep inside he's actually a racist. And yeah, therefore, <laughs> he would make an exception to this uh, overall in this overall framework against supposedly inferior races. So what's your view about that? Well, we have clear evidence that this is a misrepresentation. And really what it comes down to is the way that Mises writes. So uh, he has a very uh, distinctive writing style, especially in his early works, where he likes to lay out the argument that he's attacking, that he's critiquing in full. Uh, so he'll walk through all the anti-immigration arguments step by step by step and display what they are actually saying. And then in the final paragraph, he'll state why he rejects that. Uh, so several of these arguments, especially the ones that have come out of Slobodian, is they selectively pick quotes from where he's stating the opponent's argument and present that as uh, they misrepresent it basically as his own view uh, and then leave out or omit, or in some cases, they even edit out the very next paragraph or the very next sentence where he's saying that uh, this view I just described is nonsense and it's wrong. Uh, and in fact, we have direct evidence coming from the, the, the World War II era that Mises himself is deeply concerned about uh, the racial implications that uh, immigration restrictions have created. And the occasion that, that, that brings this up is basically the Nazis. So in, in 1926, he is traveling across Europe as a university professor, and we have uh, recorded instances from some of his German language papers uh, that he's in Berlin at the University of Berlin and attends a lecture by John Maynard Keynes. And Keynes uh, was actually much more uh, uh, ambiguous on his position on immigration. Like Keynes actually uh, defended some of the U.S. immigration restrictions that were passed in the 1920s. And during this lecture at the University of Berlin, Keynes also starts talking about the problem of overpopulation in Central Europe. Uh, doesn't really say immigration restrictions, but he says that uh, Germany is becoming overpopulated and uh, they may need to take some policies to prevent that from happening. And Mises is sitting in the audience and he says, uh, do you not realize that you're giving uh, a weapon, you're giving an argument to the Nazis to, uh, to basically restrict immigration from what they view as the lesser races? Uh, he says that you're, you're unwittingly helping uh, the opponents of liberalism by making these arguments. So we have this German language uh, essay that he writes in response to Keynes in 1927. And uh, he outright says that, uh, you know, this is the wrong way to go. And the same thing happens after World War II uh, when he's writing in reflection on the problems that uh, the world faces, what, uh, what needs to be addressed and the problems that are created by World War II. Uh, so he writes an entire book on this called Omnipotent government uh, that comes out in 1944. 
uh, is something of a precursor to, to uh, human action in 1949, but explores all the themes of everything that went wrong in the world that caused this catastrophic uh, war to break out. And in it, he has several passages. He says that, uh, yes, uh, racism is now used as a uh, justification for immigration restriction, including racism against people from what we now call the developing world. So he's talking about uh, places like Africa, um, India, South America, uh, where immigration pressures are starting to emerge. And in the book, he says, I don't have a solution to this, but we do see on the horizon the problem of racism. And he says that that this is a problem that we will have to confront and solve in a future generation because racism is becoming an obstacle itself again in the post-war era uh, to opening up migration, opening up a a, a freer migrant system. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's uh, very interesting. Yeah, so uh, as you say, indeed, that he has this um, this habit to um, first expose the position of people he wants to criticize before then uh, presenting his criticisms, and this indeed may uh, lead to some um, ill-chosen excerpts from his work uh, that could give the impression of. Um, uh, yes, of, of a racial uh, argument. But um, yeah, I mean, I was perusing uh, human action uh, again, and uh, um, it seems that, uh, first of all, it's, I mean, it's present in the sense that he often refers to people who precisely make this kind of arguments about right. racial, right. racial. So he is often having debates with those people. So indeed, it, it, it's present for this reason, but overall, it's not that present in in human action. Uh, the the yeah. question yeah. of uh, of immigration, of racism, is not that uh, absent and that present. And as I was perusing, I think I found one passage in which that could be misinterpreted, but in which he was saying something that could lead to uh, to, to misinterpretation that there is some superiority of uh, some countries over others. But um, I, I don't remember now, as we speak, if he used the word race at that moment, but he refers to the superiority for having developed the mechanisms of a market economy. And exactly. um, he's talking about industrialization. And, and, and you know, it's, it's a part of human history that certain countries did industrialize earlier and became the wealthier countries. And, and I do think a lot of his modern day detractors, they read that and they look at the language that was common in the 1940s and 1950s to describe the developed world. And they say, aha, that's racist because it's it's kind of an antiquated language, even though he's not talking about race at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's uh, I think yeah, that's that's it seems to me a, a clear position. And, and in your work. In the recent piece that you you have produced, you you highlight how precisely uh, Mrs. was in favor of uh, dismantling some obstacles to to the free movement of labor and uh, to the free movement of people, and uh, basically was saying that uh, this need the requirement for that and for the reduction in racism is also a reduction in statism. Yeah. That uh, he believes uh, he has this argument that actually, and that's something very interesting, that uh, it's government intervention, which at some point creates 
plant the seeds of this form of restrictions through a spillover effect of certain uh, restrictions or by giving in to a certain uh, protectionist uh, lobbies. Is it something you have uh, um, noticed in, in his work as well, this correlation between statism and immigration restrictions? This is absolutely the case. He points out that, uh, you know, when government steps in and intervenes in the economy, and it's, it's he says this is true, whether it's trade protectionism and tariffs, whether it's immigration barriers, whether it's regulatory obstacles and taxes at home, uh, he sees a parallel in all of these different types of policies. As soon as you open the door to the state to come in there and, and start saying, uh, well, these are the goods that can cross the border. These are the people that can come into the country. You've introduced a political dimension, and that political dimension is then used for uh, uh, either restrictionist purposes. It's used for cronyism. It's used for racist purposes. Uh, but he's saying the problem all arises from the same origin, and that origin is that you don't, you've allowed the state to step in and start to manipulate uh, basic free movement within the economy. <laughs> and uh, do, do you have any any concrete example in his work? I mean, uh, uh, as I said, I was perusing as well, and it seems to me that it, it remains at the at the level of uh, generalities that you have just said. But exactly. is there anywhere in his work any attempt to create this chain reaction from initial government uh, intervention supposedly to protect some groups, to help some wage earners, uh, to uh, more widespread uh, immigration restrictions. Does at some point, does it try at some point to to create the concatenating of the the action and reaction until until right. the fully fledged restrictions? Right. So you get the, the most theoretical version of that in, um, in Nation, State, and Economy, which comes out in 1919, right after World War One. Uh, and what he does is he lays out uh, just a succession of arguments that uh, that show, like, on a theoretical basis, uh, here's the case for free trade, here's the case for free immigration, and says these are parallel to each other. And he develops that in several, uh, several works in the 1920s. And then the second version of it that you get is when he's diagnosed the problems after World War II. Um, this is omnipotent government is where he starts to write on this, which is at the very tail end of World War II, uh, where he's saying these are the problems on the horizon. And although he doesn't get into like a specific solution, he actually says that this, the uh, solution is, is the great challenge for the next generation. And I'm paraphrasing him here, but he says the challenge for the next generation is we need to solve this problem of racism is an obstacle to immigration. Uh, and he says, I don't know the answer to that because I see all the signs that uh, race-based immigration barriers are still emergent. Uh, and he goes through and he critiques and diagnoses these, uh, but he says that they arise from the same origin that you uh, you have for other barriers to commerce, other barriers to trade uh, and the economy, and that is the state. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to, to insist, Phil, but do you... Do you think he has at some point a, a, a more elaborated theory of how the state can perpetuate racism? Absolutely. Uh, I think it's implicit there. He does not. Implicit. Uh, like, yeah. It, it's not like a Gary Becker style, here's the economics of discrimination. Uh, yeah. But he does 
implicitly go through and state that, uh, you know, that uh, racial barriers or dislike of certain groups of people are often used as a pretext to enact these policies. So there is this one passage that uh, uh, he describes in, in Omnipotent Government where he mm-hmm. says that there are, uh, are, are, are people in the developed world today, uh, and he, he's talking about uh, nations that are predominantly white, and he says that uh, uh, they shudder at the picture of millions of black and yellow people from their own countries entering into uh, the developed world. Uh, but in the very next passage, Mises goes through and says that the elaboration of the system uh, of um, free immigration is actually more consistent with a, a harmonious coexistence and peaceful economic cooperation because it's done on a voluntary basis if you allow people to move. Uh, and he says that this is uh, a, an interesting problem because it emerges from the state. And then he goes and points out what's happening in World War II. He says that all of these uh, uh, immigration restrictionists that are saying, uh, well, the problems are coming from what uh, was referred to at the time as the third world or, or countries that uh, uh, are, are under, underdeveloped, uh, the problems coming from Africa and South America and places that uh, uh, white Europeans don't want immigration. He says, wait a minute, look at World War II right now. Uh, and he says, quote, that the, the actual menace to our civilization that we're seeing playing out in this war did not come from a conflict between white people and colored races and the other parts of the world. It came from a conflict from people of European ancestry who decided that another group of European ancestry, uh, Jewish people, uh, were a target, were unfit. And that's what happened in Germany. So he's basically saying that all of these people that are complaining about uh, uh, the the supposed threat of immigration uh, from non-white people in other parts of the world are hypocrites here. Uh, so he's diagnosing it as as just this uh, uh, horrible condition that emerges as soon as the state enters in. And, he, and he's telling the people that would make those types of arguments about uh, the developing world, uh, look at what you did during World War II. Uh, you discriminated um, internally to Europe and declared that uh, uh, like the white Aryan Nordic races were supposedly superior to other European races. Uh, and he's basically saying this is all a bunch of nonsense. Uh, that emerges from simply opening the door to allowing the state to step in and make these decisions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I see. I see Reza misses as 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 a broad scholar of um, of um, economic liberalism, and uh, he, he had some incursion in the themes of migration and um, and um, racism. Among among other things, but uh, my, my impression of of Mises is that he is is at at a deeper level of understanding of the economy. But and so Absolutely. he's more more of a source of inspiration for those working on migration than someone who would have uh, at some point devoted, uh, for instance, a book or uh, a strong piece to 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 immigration and uh, and um, the kind of migration regime you would see at the at the at the global level but do you think that Mises would have been sympathetic with the the slightly more elaborated view that if you have uh, free markets uh, and then you have some uh, equalization of wages uh, among countries then immigration stops being such a major uh, predicament and probably as well 
racism may stop being uh, being such a major issue because racism may itself be a reflection on the misery of others. You read, uh, I mean, anthropologically, it could be <laughs> that some groups react to the misery of others. They don't want to be contaminated by this misery and they reject them in bulk, um, especially when there is a, a kind of uh, uh, match between their economic level and some phenotypical features. So this concatenation, which is free markets, lead to equalization of wages, which in turn leads to uh, the resorption of racial prejudice. Um, do you think he would have contemplated something like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you, you framed it perfectly in saying that Mises is laying out the building blocks for a free economy, and those are the implicit extensions. And what we do is we, we see the work in later Austrians uh, and later economic analysts that are working specifically on immigration. Uh, so I, I point to the work of people like Ben Powell and Alex Naresta, who have taken inspiration out of the Austrian school, and they continue that logic to the present day. And they do say that, yes, that uh, uh, immigration leads to wage equalization. It alleviates uh, misallocation of, of, of resources just in the same way that free trade does. And what follows from that is greater economic cooperation. Uh, and you see that theme over and over again in Mises, even if he's not specifically attributing it to uh, a certain immigration policy, he's saying that one of the great things the market does is a social coordinator. It's a, uh, a decentralized coordinator of, uh, of market-based cooperation. And when you have free exchange or free contact, contract or free labor, uh, that tends to be a social force against the discord, against uh, uh, violence and war and all the things that he associates with, uh, with state action. Yeah. And, and on this particular issue of racism, do you think that you would have, I, I, again, reading his book, I, I did not see it expressed directly, but do you think mm -hmm. he would have, he could have been sympathetic at least to this view that um, racism stems to some extent from uh, the, the, the inequality among people, uh, economic inequality, and therefore the lack of wage equalization. And so uh, groups that are richer uh, tend to become racist towards groups that are poor. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And therefore, the, the treatment is the equalization through market mechanisms. I does he does he uh, does it match his possible extension in that field? Yeah, so this is an area where uh, when economists start studying the problem of discrimination, and this this work really gets underway in the 1950s, uh, especially in the U.S. in response to uh, racial segregation. Uh, but uh, when economists start to look at that, uh, a lot of it comes out of the University of Chicago. It's Gary Becker and Milton Friedman that are working on this. Uh, they start to see the mechanisms of exactly what you described. Uh, so I think what Mises has done here is he set the stage for the next generation of other free market economists uh, to look at this, these issues and spell out those mechanisms uh, that, yes, that racism does emerge from inequalities that are often imposed or enforced by bad policies of the state. Uh, it's not inequality in the sense that the left goes after it, the left claims that uh, that capitalism breeds inequality by separating the haves and the have-nots, and you get the whole uh, Marxian strain of, of economic analysis. Mises is saying something very different is going on here. Mm -hmm. He says when we see inequalities emerging in society, it's usually because some interest group has gotten the government to put up a barrier 
to free exchange. And that absence of free exchange allows the accumulation of resources on the preferential side of the barrier, which is usually the interest group that's been able to uh, to lobby the government. Uh, so using that framework, yes, we have a very clear explanation. If that interest group happens to be uh, racist or segregationists, uh, then they're going to play out in the same way that you'd expect from any other interest group that's putting up a barrier to its own advantage and to the disadvantage of somebody else. And then what you see around us is, is a a real manifestation of that discrimination uh, coming about because of some of the policy decisions that have been made. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that's um, yes, very very important and uh, and interesting. And uh, maybe a last uh, a last thought on that. I was thinking about um, a French historian, uh, Fernand Bordel, who was uh, mm -hmm. working on capitalism and. Um, So who was making the argument that capitalism existed already in the early modern Europe and and that there was he was uh, as a historian always describing the attempts as as you have just said of groups to distort the markets. It was Absolutely. they were always trying to distort the market to channel resources in their favor. Um uh that's I mean then we, we go broader than to a broader reflection but what would missis have said about that how can we solve this yeah yeah so so mises in some ways is a predecessor of what we now call public choice theory Uh, again, that emerges a little bit later. It's mostly the 1960s that that, that takes shape. And, and by that time, Mises is uh, he's 90 years old. He's at the end of his career. Uh, but earlier in his work, he laid out uh, a theory of bureaucracy, for example. Uh, he also laid out theories of political economy that were deeply influential on Gordon Tullock, who's one of the founders of public choice theory. Uh, and all of this comes down to, uh, to basically interpreting and understanding why interest groups groups are able to capture the government and distort it in ways that uh, redirect resources to themselves. Uh, and, and, you know, Mises's overarching point uh, is that liberalism, liberalism in the classical sense, is a way to, uh, uh, to essentially bottle up these tendencies that otherwise enter into the government. Uh, it says that we, we need to reject the notion that the government even has a proper role to play in distorting market exchange, because as soon as you open the door to uh, those types of distortions, uh, you get what we now call the public choice problems. You get the interest groups that creep in and uh, they'll either capture parts of the legislature or the administrative state, and they, then they start to redirect resources to themselves. So again, it's it's uh, the importance of Mises is uh, that he's laying out the building blocks that later economists uh, start to develop and, and, and figure out the precise applications and mechanisms of, but it all goes back to this point that uh, as soon as you allow the state to enter into uh, uh, economic regulation and intervention, it opens the door to interest groups, and those interest groups are trying to get something for themselves at the expense, usually, of all of society. Yeah, and and how would he, how would he keep the state in check? That's rather the other way around. That's the state that keeps others in check. So how to keep the state in check? That is how to keep in check an organization that has developed a monopoly on violence on a certain territory and is therefore unborn by definition. How to keep it in check? So there are the traditional checks and balances, but these are internal uh, constitution, uh, constitutional arrangements within the state. And um, 
as he developed at some point something like that, that is what is what is uh, he was an economist, not a political scientist, but exactly, what is yeah. the framework that can prevent this, uh, as you say, opening uh, the door to 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 um, state intervention uh, and market distortions. Yeah. I mean, basically, this comes down to one of the reasons why he writes human action is to make the case uh, against these types of policies, against these types of uh, of interventions that are occurring. And, uh, and you know, uh, Mises himself and I think more broadly, the Austrian economics tradition, they gravitate to something that, that uh, you know, his, his colleague and student, Frederick Hayek, eventually develops and frames uh, in some of his later works. And that is the concept of a, a, a generality norm, a generality norm against preferences at the constitutional level, uh, basically saying that government cannot uh, engage in any behavior that gives out a preferential treatment to one group over another. Uh, so it's it's an abstract theory. It's a theory of constitutional governments, but I think it's very consistent with something that Mises is, is steering his readers toward, is that we need to have robust international institutions uh, in the sense that, uh, uh, you, you know, they, they prevent the emergence of a protectionist regime or they prevent the emergence of a, uh, a uh, an anti-immigration regime. You know, Mises is writing at a time in the 1930s when uh, the international trading system absolutely collapses. It moves from uh, relatively free to uh, uh, very aggressive protectionism overnight in the wake of the Great Depression, and that's all triggered by the Depression itself. Uh, the United States locks down its uh, its economy with uh, protectionist measures as an attempt to weather the, the Depression, and then every other country in the world starts to retaliate, and it's a downward spiral. So Mises sees this play out in real time, and uh, he, he's basically saying that uh, uh, you know when you have political institutions that reward uh, special interest groups at the local level, uh, this is a way to devolve into uh, um, just complete chaos in the international arena in ways that are economically destructive that, that basically killed off global trade. Uh, so he's looking after the war. He says, okay, well, what kind of institutions can we have uh, that prevent this type of a situation from occurring again? And really what it comes down to at the base is a uh, just a core recognition that this is not an area that the government should step into. Uh, and uh, it needs to be internationally agreed to that uh, uh, like a, a classical li liberal commitment to trade um, across nations um, is it, just the norm that we adhere to. Yeah, uh, we, we had an episode in this uh, program, uh, episode uh, three, with uh, Alain Zisset precisely on the Euro European Court on Human Rights. And I think it, it echoes what you say here about the role of international institutions and the European Court of Human Rights, which which was created right after the Second World War, yeah. uh, precisely stemmed from this idea that um, you can have domestic developments uh, that spill over into the international system. And so you, by having a system of norms uh, enforced by um, international courts, you can prevent domestic developments, uh, such domestic developments from taking place. And we, we, we had this episode in July when the court precisely intervened in relation to a decision by the British government to try to uh, send migrants to Rwanda for processing. And the court say, wait a minute, this is not possible because they cannot have a fair um, uh, 
review of their case. And so this contradicts uh, uh, some basic uh, principles of international law. And so, yeah, the, the discussion we had then was that the court can act to, to, to prevent some excessive government intervention uh, in this area, which then uh, spill over into into broader um, broader restrictions. But yes, so um, so yes, this was uh, an important debate. So Mises is more a broad uh, scholar, uh, placing the building blocks of uh, liberal reflections uh, on um, on the economy. And uh, his position on immigration restrictions is, result, is to oppose them in favor of the equalization of wages through the free movement of labor. And he's not far also probably from thinking that racism itself could spill over from excessive state uh, intervention. So once we have said that, uh, we, we right. come to the, to the core of uh, what you have been doing in the last month, exactly. which is trying to go after uh, uh, the detractors of uh, of Ludwig von Mises. So you have been you have been fighting uh, Phil with the detractors on both sides, uh, exactly. if I may, of the political spectrum. And one side uh, is by uh, followers of uh, Anselman Hope. Uh, if, exactly. uh, so uh, hope, with Hope, we come back to the question of uh, the state, uh, the how to. Uh, regulates the state. So Anselman Hope is uh, mostly famous for uh, his book about democracy, uh, mm -hmm. the god, the god that fail. And so uh, compare um, uh, I mean, for 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 Hope, uh, democracy is a, a mild version of socialism. And um, but I was uh, again re reading Mrs. and Mrs. is a Democrat. Uh, yes, not in the. <laughs> In the Opus tradition, and <laughs> those in the in the tradition of Anselm and Hope uh, say a democracy is bound to spill over into excessive state intervention because democracy sacralizes sacralizes the state so much that the state becomes omnipotent. But it's not what Mrs. was thinking about. So, wh uh, why? And and in parallel to that, the Opeans, if we can call them like that, took a very restrictive stance on immigration, uh, explicitly this time, huh? and unambiguously. So how can they still consider themselves Mrsian? Mrs. Right. <laughs> So, so this is one of the great questions I struggle with. I mean, the Hoppians are, uh, they present themselves as a strain of Austrian economics, and they call themselves the heirs of Mises, uh, the heirs of Murray Rothbard to some degree. And, uh, you know, if you look on paper, where do they emerge from? Uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe is a, uh, a scholar in his own right that comes up in some ways under the tutelage of Murray Rothbard, and he claims, therefore, that he's a successor of Mises, who was Rothbard's teacher. Uh, so there's like an academic lineage argument that's made here, but the tension is that uh, these theories that he's laying out, and whether the one that you describe about democracy itself versus uh, uh, the Hoppians kind of go in the direction of a quasi-monarchy as the preferential uh, arrangement of government, and I look at that, and I, this is something that probably would have horrified Mises. Uh, you know, he, he is he, he is many things, but he's not a, a monarchist uh, by any means. He's uh, uh, if if he'd call himself something it would be a classical liberal in the 19th century model which is all about constraining the centralization of authority uh, whether that's a monarch or a dictator uh, so to see that the Hoppians uh, move in that direction of monarchy is itself a, a, an oddity but one of the arguments I make is uh, is that Hoppe uh, 
takes certain things out of the Austrian school. He takes subjective or marginalist theory of value out of the Austrian school, and he, he does accept that. Uh, so uh, the free market implications that come from uh, marginalism are present in Hoppe's work. But he also imports all of these other ideas from non-Austrian traditions and then just kind of relabels them or repackages them as if they're part of Austrian economics. And the two strains that I detect in there, because I, I walk through his works, including his book, uh, Democracy, the God That Fails, and you find that every time he's talking about Mises on immigration, uh, he speaks about him in the past tense. He basically says, well, Mises had a theory of free immigration, but that was suited for an earlier era in human history. I'm paraphrasing him here, but he says that, that was, uh, that's an antiquated view from like the 19th century that worked when Mises was writing, but we need a different theory now. Uh, so then I asked the question, well, where does he go to get his different theory? And he turns to uh, uh, what we would consider hard right or in some cases alt-right style uh, theorists. Uh, so he, he has all these citations and quotations from this fellow by the name of J. Philippe Rushton, who was a, uh, a Canadian eugenics uh, theorist that wrote in, uh, basically in the 1990s uh, prior to when Hoppe writes this book. And Rushton is about as far from the uh, Austrian school as one could possibly get. He's just this really right-wing, uh, almost race theorist. He's all into uh, pairing up racial uh, categories with IQ and intelligence and concluding uh, he basically um, in a white supremacist direction. He basically says that white people are, are more intelligent. And, and you find this in Hoppe's work, all these citations to Rushton in places when uh, he starts talking about issues like race. Uh, so what he's doing is he's reaching outside of the Austrian tradition, picking up ultra right wing uh, theorists and importing them in and trying to blend them in. And then the second area where, uh, where uh, Hoppe goes for a framework uh, comes from his own background. Uh, and it, it's, it's strange because it's actually on the far left. It's the critical theory school of, uh, of Jürgen Habermas, who was his dissertation advisor. Uh, it's the Frankfurt School of Marxism, basically. And what Hoppe does uh, actually fits in a, a really interesting critique that Mises makes. So Mises in the 1950s uh, was once asked in a lecture, what are the two threats or what are the major threats on the world's horizon? And he answers uh, pretty blank, uh, like, like pretty straightforward in the, uh, uh, the response. He says, well, uh, it's the resurgence of left-wing and right-wing Hegelianism. Uh, left-wing Hegelian, we know as Marxism, socialism, uh, everything that was derivative from that world. And he's, he's saying this at a time when the Soviet Union is the major uh, left-wing Hegelian power. Uh, but it's after World War II when the Nazis have been defeated, so they think the right-wing extensions of Hegelianism have gone by the wayside, but he's a, uh, afraid of them resurging. So one of the arguments that I make is that Hoppe takes the left-wing Hegelianism of the Frankfurt School, this is conflict theory between groups. Uh, you know, Marxists say it's on class lines, uh, the proletariat versus the bourgeois. But he takes that framework and reappropriates it and says instead of classes, it's actually racial groups or nationalities or identity groups that are the conflicting powers. And uh, and in Hoppe's work, one of the th one of the themes he teases out in the search is that. Uh, 
the host country versus the immigrants are the division lines in which conflict occurs, and it's conflict over control of material resources. So it's like this right-wing spin on Hegelianism that comes out of uh, the left-wing methodology of critical theory merged in with this far-right J. J. Philippe Rushton-style eugenic theory, and you blend those two together, and you basically get this restrictionist argument for immigration that's in uh, Democracy the God That Failed and some of the other Hoppian arguments that are out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Um... It's so contradictory, it seems to me, because, uh, mm-hmm. as you say, it sounds more like Marxism like, than um, Austrian school. Um, in any exactly. Society. There's an article that Hoppe writes um, in, the, I think it's the late 1980s or, or early 1990s, and, and it's, it's basically how, how do Austrians look at Karl Marx? And the first time I read this, I was shocked because he declares in the opening uh, sentences, he says, uh, Marx's theory of history was essentially right, was essentially correct. Uh, He was simply wrong on his theory of value. And if we merge in uh, insights from the Austrian school, we can basically like (laughs) fix this Marxist theory of history. Uh, which is about as far from Mises as one could possibly get. Uh, Mises writes a, an entire book on theories of history in the 1950s, and uh, he's very negative on the Marxist worldview uh, that history progresses through stages that are predictable in scientific ways because of material conflict, whereas Hoppe essentially accepts that and just says that Marx gets the dividing lines wrong, gets the diagnosis wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I I, I don't know enough uh, Anselm and Hope to to really um, uh, have a say in this in this discussion. But um, yeah, it seems to me it seems to me a, a very special case and blending uh, blending different intellectual tradition as you as you as you were saying. And um, but um, on the uh, on the institutions, um, I I, um, I saw the point of uh, Anselm and Hoppe, that is that democracy uh, sacralizes the state. Uh, the majority voting, when the majority has talked, uh, the, the, the state has such a, a powerful uh, legitimacy that they can act uh, massively. So th- that, that's basically the argument. And, um, and I think also uh, misses us some lines on this that uh, uh, the the possible tyranny of the majority uh, over of a minority. But um, so why? How does democracy fit in Mrs. Um, in Mrs. Um, general vision? Well, you know, there's the old joke about democracy that it is the worst system of government except for all the others. It's a uh, a democracy is certainly recognized as an imperfect system in uh, in the Misesian framework. but he's also cognizant that uh, you know you as economists we're trained to ask the question compared to what we can't speak in absolutes about democracy we always have to consider democracy versus other systems of government uh, and what are the outcomes that they yield well it turns out that uh, you know democracy even though it has its problems it has 
tyranny of, of the majority. It's susceptible to interest group capture and rent seeking. This, these are problems as old as time itself uh, that every political theorist has written about. Uh, democracy has recognized. Uh, but what are the alternatives? If the alternatives are autocracy, if they're a monarchy, if they're a dictatorship, um, if they're uh, some other different type of arrangement, uh, similar problems emerge. So what we see in Mises is not an absolute statement that uh, democracy is the greatest thing ever. Uh, it's not something that we sanctify. It's a recognition mm -hmm. that democracy with, uh, with some of its uh, problems recognized uh, is a less bad system than uh, other things that preceded it, other alternative arrangements that we see coming out of the socialist world at the time that he's writing. Uh, and again, this is an area where Mises is like a building block theorist to others who work on it. So the public choice tradition takes up the question uh, of uh, what do voting arrangements yield? And uh, their answers to that all say that uh, we need to look at constitutional design, constitutional designs that permit democratic governance, but also protect the rights yeah. of minority groups. Yeah. Uh, so you need uh, rights as a, a core component built into the system to say that, mm -hmm. you know, government cannot do this. Government yeah. cannot intrude on free speech, cannot intrude on uh, freedom of movement, uh, free economy. Uh, these are, are, are mechanisms that are put in place to prevent 50% plus one deciding that they don't like the rest of society and attempting to penalize or persecute them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting, yes. And um, yeah, I, I agree with you that um, the criticism of democracy by uh, by the appearance is, is 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 also problematic because the kind of spillover that they decry in democracy has recurrently occurred in other types of political exactly. system as well um, uh, in the monarch in, mon in traditional monarchies or as you said in autocracies. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. So a strange case of uh, of uh, Ansem and Hope about um, the affiliation with Mrs., which is uh, which is problematic in 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 many aspects for democracy for for migration. And there is a second uh, type of criticism: those ones that don't claim at all to be Mrsians. Oh, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they are anti-Mississians, uh, and they. Though um, so you have been mostly involved in uh, in um, trying to uh, set the record straight about Mrs. in relation to uh, the publications of uh, of a historian that uh, uh, that you cited, and um, I think uh, your, your piece is quite um, is quite uh, convincing, and so why do you think that? Um, um, Queen Slobodian and, uh, and and others as well huh? uh, distort Mrs. Why do they distort him? Yeah. So Quinn Slobodian is this historian that comes from a very far left anti-capitalist tradition. Uh, I mean, he, he's uh, he's associated with the people that would uh, be active in like Occupy Wall Street and some of these protest movements that you see coming out of the very far, far left. Uh, they view capitalism as an imposed system or institution that creates inequalities, uh, serving the haves at the expense of the have nots. And what they see in Mises is a uh, is one of the more powerful defenders of free market capitalism. Uh, so. 
part of the strategy here, and I, I've argued that this has become increasingly clear and apparent in Slobodian's work and why he's drawn to uh, to write on Mises and the Austrian school, is uh, he sees them as obstacles uh, to, to a very far left redistributionist, almost Marxian economic system that uh, uh, that he desires for normative reasons to impose. So uh, in some sense, uh, you know, he attacks Mises for the same reason that uh, in the 1910s and 20s, you had people like Rudolf Hilferding that are fighting against the Austrians in the, at the University of Vienna. Uh, the Marxists that are coming head to head with the marginalist schools in the early 20th century, they are fighting over the same reasons, uh, conflicting economic visions. Uh, but what Slobodian does is he attempts to sidestep actually engaging in Mises's direct arguments uh, because, you know, the socialist calculation debate was pretty much settled by the, the failure of the Soviet Union. Uh, the Marxists, the far left, realized that basically they've lost on that margin. So instead, uh, Slobodian's approach is to try to taint Mises's reputation mm-hmm. with uh, the legacy of racism, the legacy of discrimination. Uh, so, so it's almost like a, a, a slander Mises and discredit him that way, then you don't have to engage his economic arguments, uh, which is what we see in Slobodian's work. And this is the charge I've made directly against him. Uh, I find case after case after case in Slobodian's articles where he manipulates quotes to make Mises sound like he's a defender of racism and colonialism. And I'll quote one of them briefly for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what really alerted me to it. Uh, Slobodian writes this article where he, he asserts uh, that Mises wrote after the end of the First World War uh, that all of the gains of colonialism made it worthwhile and in the end, quote, all other pages in world history were also written in blood. And the implication is that therefore uh, uh, Mises thinks that it's, it's acceptable to conquer by blood. Uh, but if you go to the real passage, the original passage in Mises's book, uh, Mises says, quote, all other, all other pages in world history were also written in blood. And then he continues, but nothing is more stupid than efforts to justify today's imperialism with all of its brutalities by references to the atrocities of generations long since gone. So Mises says the exact opposite of what Slobodian attributes this quote to him uh, to do. And I look at this and I say that there, there can only be really one reason why Slobodian is uh, is uh, quote mining and editing in this direction. And it's to make Mises look like he's a defender of the exact systems that he was attacking. Yeah, th- there is something that is uh, striking when uh, reading Mrs. Um, uh, in particular the 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 book Plan Chaos. Um, it's that uh, y- you you may have the feeling that some of Mrs. writings have been written in the last years. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> the, the political the political system uh, of the thirties or forties <laughs> when. Mises was writing most of his works is not so different from the political systems that I mean system in the political landscape rather that we we are having today and so um, in that sense Mises is very modern in the sense that he's taking he's taking um, a fight with arguments that are extremely uh, widespread today and um, and so it's not I mean it, some people argue with him retrospectively as a result that is uh, and they use against him as you suggest uh, techniques that 
you see also a used again other types of uh, of um, of uh, intellectuals uh, today and that are alive. So uh, the accusation of racism uh, is uh, is one of them, and it's very common actually uh, to, um, to to have that. So um, yes, yeah, so. Uh, According to you, that's uh, that's a technique to uh, to discredit him and be able to proceed uh, with uh, another political agenda, which this time attacked the core yeah. of uh, Mrs. Argument. That is, you take him on th- on something that is not central, but on which he has some reflection, and possibly misinterpreting him. Yes, I think you make a case huh? misinterpreting him. Um, to to attack the, the core of his arguments, there is also something interesting is that um, um, the historian uh, Quinn Slobodian has been famous for a book published uh, in 2018, uh, Globalists. Mm-hmm. But in that book, there is a chapter about um, a world of um, a world of races, yeah. uh, in which there is no criticism of Mrs. Interestingly. Uh, it's in later works or parallel works to this particular book that uh, the criticism of Mrs. came in. And th- this is part of what you have done as well. That is, you, you came after a, a review process. Yes. And yeah. you, you, you suggest that initially there was nothing um, about Mrs. Uh, I mean, attacking Mrs. as a racist. But it came in the middle of the review process. That's so, exactly it. So, why wasn't it there from the beginning, and why did it come in the um, in later works or in the middle, sometimes of works under revision? Yeah, yeah. So, so Swobodian writes this book, uh, The Globalist, is the one that came in 2018, and I reviewed it. I gave it a fairly negative review, but I also credited it for finding interesting archival work. And as you mentioned, he does have a chapter on race there that is not about Mises. It's about some lesser-known figures in the free yeah. market world that did engage in racism, uh, in particular some that defended apartheid in South Africa. Uh, mm-hmm. But he, he's definitely not charging Mises with that. Uh, the, these are more obscure uh, members of the free market world. And, and you know you can go to any point in history and you can find racists associated with almost any political perspective. Uh, so it's, not, it's nothing there that is... Uh, is particularly groundbreaking. But what he does is after he published this book, I think he got a, uh, a hint of the fame that came from the book. And then he starts making similar extensions of his argument in academic articles. Uh, and he gets more aggressive. And what we find in these articles starting in 2019 and running up to the present day uh, is he also tries to use that same brush to paint Mises as a racist. And uh uh, claims he was not making in the original book start to be inserted into these articles starting in 2019. And what I found is, so so he uh, he publishes the first of these uh, shortly after the book, and it's the one where uh, where he has those quote distortions, including that one that I just read to you, uh, but there are numerous similar ones like it. Uh, when he published a, a draft of this working paper online, I read it and immediately recognized, hey, there are problems here. Uh, he's misrepresenting Mises's work. So I wrote up a response paper to it. 
and uh, sent it to the same journal that published this article and said, uh, uh, look, here are some factual errors. He's misrepresenting Mises. Let me present an alternative thesis here that I think is, is more grounded in evidence. Uh, and we can debate this and debate it in the pages of the journals as, uh, as academics are supposed to do. Uh, well, I get a, uh, a message back like a week later that's, uh, that's just desk reject of the article. Uh, it says that uh, we're not interested in your thesis. And I, I'm like, well, this is strange because I have, a, a, a I think, pretty conclu- conclusive evidence that this other article by Slobodian that you're running um, is not being truthful to the evidence here. Uh, so I write the editor back asking them for an elaboration, and they don't give me anything. They, uh, they, they don't hear anything at all from them on why uh, they accepted his version of the argument, but uh, but found mine uh, objectionable. It was just, uh, we're not interested. We don't want to publish this. There's nothing uh, here to the dispute. Um, so as I pursue it further, I also discover uh, that in the process, um, when Slobodian had sent his article out to the journal, they submitted it to peer reviewers. And one of the referees uh, contacts me after seeing my article, it says, I refereed Slobodian's piece and I raised the same criticisms. And I told the journal editor that there are major problems with this uh, article. And the referee said that uh, uh, they actually recommended rejecting Slobodian's article, but the editor of the journal just ignored them. Uh, so this is a very strange thing in the peer review process when your own referee says uh, uh, that this is a bad article, it has problems that need to be fixed or else you need to reject the piece. And then the editor says, well, I'm just going to ignore that and run it anyway. Uh, so it turned into a very long, drawn out process where uh, um, I actually raised an ethics complaint with the journal and said, not only are you uh, rejecting my response to Slobodian without giving a good reason for it, uh, you also rec- uh, rejected and ignored your own referee um, during the peer review process. This is completely out of uh, academic norms. And uh, the journal, unfortunately, they did, did a bunch of hand-waving, and they claimed they did an internal investigation, and uh, and then they just brushed it aside. Uh, they said, oh, well, uh, we're not going to pursue any, uh, any recourse on this. Um, we stand by the article. It's just differences of interpretation. Uh, so I wrote up a piece about this, published it in Economic Journal Watch that walks through the process of everything that I encountered of of simply trying to enforce basic ethical peer review norms at this journal uh, over a piece that was very problematic. And uh, what it ended up being is that the journal and its press and its editors uh, stood behind Slobodian and then, then come to, uh, to discover that in, in, in the middle of this entire process, Slobodian is named the new co-editor of the exact same journal. So there's a, uh, a bit of a conflict of interest here that's played out. Uh, and I think this is really illustrated that academia has some major ethical problems at the moment, especially when they uh, are, are willing to accept behavior and uh, processes that violate peer review because they like the political outcome. They like the political message that Slobodian is saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the story, there is something I was, um, I, I did not get, but maybe you, you cannot disclose it. So if you can't, no worries. Sure. Uh, how did you... Uh, find the reviewer yeah so i wrote up a short uh, a couple of short blog posts about my experience with this journal 
and the fact that they were uh, uh, not responding to what were substantive critiques of errors in the piece. And uh, the, the person that had refereed it uh, read my blog post oh, and okay. saw it. And, and he reached Which out. Which book was it? Uh, so I, I put it up on uh, AIER.org, is, uh, uh, which right. is our, our website. And then okay. uh, so, so the, the referee just happened to read it and said, uh, wait a minute, I remember that exact same article. Uh, <laughs> I was the referee on it, and I okay. recommended rejection. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. So, um, so anyway, to to go back to the big uh, the, the big point, it's that um, so yes, your argument is that um, there are there are dist- in that particular case there are distortions of Mrs. Thought on immigration and on races in order to discredit it for another political agenda. Yeah. Um, I would say also that in that particular case, there may be also some institutional uh, logic that uh, you don't want. uh, We know that journals uh, never want to admit they have been wrong. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Whereas it used to be the case in the past, as you were saying, that journals used to publish Used to publish errors or about the content in the in the in the pieces, and so. But this was at the time when there was no peer review, so actually it did not discredit the journal. Now with the peer review, if the peer review goes wrong for some reason, then it's all the journal that is affected and that loses its credibility. So you have an interest in uh, in never admitting that you have been wrong. <laughs> that's exactly. something that's that's also an outcome of of um, an extensive peer review because once it's conducted the journal loses its credibility if it turns out to be incorrect so independently maybe of the particular political line of an article you have the institutional logic of the journal that makes it extremely hard to run uh um is uh, uh, to run uh, a statement of mistakes in an article that has been published because then you can you open you you, you start wondering what is, editor, your, <laughs> what is your what is your review then. That's, so, that's exactly it. Yes. So um, yeah. So in that case, there are possible institutional uh, mechanisms like that. But then. As as uh, as a scholar, you have been very much also involved in the debate about anti-capitalism and the historical so, profession, and so you suggest that uh, in that particular case, it was something that is at the root of the misinterpretation of uh, of misses. That is, there is um, there would be a widespread ideology among among certain uh, certain historians, and it's not new. Huh? There, there there has been, and um, and this affects this affects the quality of of the work, and um, and can have some political implications as well. How do you see? Uh, so, why do you think the historical profession characterized by uh, a high degree of scepticism um, towards capitalism and liberalism. So this is a problem that's existed in the history profession for uh, almost a century now. Uh, if you go back in the early 1950s, uh, Frederick Hayek edited a great little book called uh, Capitalism and the Historians. 
And it was a selection of papers given at a Mont Pelerin Society meeting that he edited together. Uh, So Hayek has a paper in there. uh, W.H. Hutt has a paper. There's a a whole series of commentaries on why historians are biased against capitalism. Uh, And what it really comes down to is kind of like this self-reinforcing mechanism. If there's a, um, a, a dominant ideological perspective within the history profession that's skeptical of capitalism, views wealth as a zero-sum game between the haves and the have-nots. Some of this comes from a a Marxist infusion of viewing material conflict as the the driving mechanism of history, but there's also uh, even pre-Marxist biases against markets that uh, have infused into the discipline. Well, what it means is that when historians see an argument that's coming from an anti-capitalist perspective, they're very credulous and well welcoming to that argument. They don't scrutinize the evidence. They don't look at uh, the footnotes. uh, They don't ask questions. They just take it at face value as a given because it confirms something that they already believe about uh, capitalism being a source of problems and inequality and injustice in the world. Uh, So what we're dealing with is basically uh, built up decades upon decades, a better part of a century of an ideological bias that's existed in this one discipline. And I think it's gotten worse in recent years. We see this in survey data that the history profession used, used to lean uh, just left of center. Now it's like 80 or 90 percent on the left. Uh, in the universities, if you ask uh, professors about their political beliefs, uh, almost all historians say that they're on the left, and it's one of the most left-leaning fields in general. Uh, so, so I think what's happened here is uh, as earlier generations of historians have retired, including people that were inclined to question the anti-capitalism uh, perspective in the history profession, as they retire, they're being replaced by people that are in ideological agreement that capitalism is wrong and is something that should be opposed. Uh, So the field itself has moved even further to the left. And then you get the self-reinforcing echo chamber of whenever someone says an anti-capitalist argument, uh, they just all nod their heads in agreement because it sounds uh, like it's supposed to be true to them. Yeah, I I was, I mean, on the one end, it's, um, it's, it's clear. Uh, I think I am wondering if it's not more the case in the U.S. even mm-hmm. than in some European countries. Depend on the country. There are some countries in which it's like that as well, but it can depend. But I was I was trying to 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 think about that. And so, do you think that I mean, role of states in funding the profession? can play a role in, in, in this outcome. I mean, I would say that to some extent I have doubts myself about this possible explanation. That it, I mean, the historical profession has very has traditionally been dependent on the state to fund it. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and so you can expect to have a transfer of ideology at the same time as you have a transfer of money. And, <laughs> That's exactly it. And, well, it's what's rewarded. And I, I've seen these grant processes. I, I've reviewed documents of other grants that have been given, and I've been a, a peer reviewer on on grants myself in the history profession. 
And, uh, you know, a lot of it comes from the federal government in the United States. And I'm, I'm sure it's true of most countries. And I'm sure it's true of the European Union as well. When they fund academic research, uh, there is a bias in the types of grants that get approved. Uh, so like I, I read uh, a grant application from this other book that was uh, basically like this far left wing conspiracy theory about Milton Friedman and the neoliberals uh, taking over the economy in the 20th century. And uh, you read the comments that came out of the grant review process and the, uh, the people that the government had selected uh, as the National Endowment for the Humanities in the United States had selected to review the, uh, uh, the, the process, uh, all just basically nodded in agreement as if this is an accepted truth that Milton Friedman had done all these horrible things. Uh, and then, then they rubber stamp it. Uh, so the tax money is coming out of the government to reinforce an anti-capitalist narrative, and that anti-capitalist narrative is then used to uh, to make the political case on why the government should be uh, more interventionist in the economy. So it's a self-reinforcing uh, relationship between government grants, the academy, and uh, uh, political activism. Yeah, um, in the case of the European Union, I... I I have my uh, my own thoughts about that also because the the EU itself is at least until today a liberal project. It's not right. like the US. Right. It's, it's not like the US on free trade, trade essentially. Yes, yes, it's not like the US federal government or or, or or national governments. But I was not thinking primarily about grants, but even about positions, the way yep. universities mm-hmm. are fund are funded, um, but. I, I mean, I, there is this argument that is okay, the color of the of the of the funding body has an impact on those who are funded. But actually, is the left more stages than the right today? There was also this tradition that the right used to be more liberal, but it's it's almost over. Uh, I mean, I, I, exactly. I so why does the lean left if it's the reason? If it has to do with the funding, uh, because. I mean, as uh, the, the the left and the right are, are both increasingly statist in their outlooks, you you if this was a primary factor, then you would not have a left wing bias necessarily. If is if it was still the the, the Republican Party, for instance, of the eighties, uh, oh, exactly. yeah. yeah. then maybe so, it could. I, I do see some of this element. I think what it what it comes down to is the left has an older entrenchment in these institutions. And what we see of the illiberal parts of the right, the statist parts of the right, these are the, the nationalist conservatives that want to do trade protectionism and, uh, and basically reject free markets. What they are saying is, well, this strategy worked for the left to capture all the institutions uh, by using big government. We should just copy it, only uh, instead of using it for left-wing purposes, we'll use it for right-wing purposes. Uh, but because they're later to the game, that means that the other side already has a, a, a much deeper entrenchment. Uh, although, you know, as you note, uh, what happened in the Trump administration when, when uh, uh, some elements of the Trump administration tried to get into uh, the history profession, uh, so they funded all these commissions and things that were going to uh, uh, tell an official version of U.S. history that matched uh, their political ideology. Uh, but it was basically using the exact same strategy that the left had already done for decades and saying, well, we'll just do it in the opposite direction. Um, so I, I think that 
what we see in the bias is that it comes from a matter of timing. Uh, the left has been much more entrenched going back for decades, whereas the right is a newcomer to that game, especially after it's turned in an illiberal direction. And as a newcomer to that game, they're just simply trying to replicate the same strategies. Uh, but uh, again, the people that are caught in the middle, that's the classical liberals, because, uh, you know, we're hated on both sides. We, we have uh, uh, people on both sides of us that are against what we believe in. Uh, so, so we're really kind of stuck with no home, uh, especially in the government funding world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think um, I have a, a very a complete explanation about that. And, and again, also, we need, to, we need to be careful and think, try to differentiate what could be real ideological motivations and what are sometimes institutional uh, processes that lead to, um, for instance, with this journal that uh, we, were, we were mentioning. But... Okay, whatever is the reason, uh, and we, we may end with this last question, is so we were saying that um, historians have been traditionally dependent on the state, uh, but actually do intellectuals need the state? Do historians need the state to, be, to do history? Do you think um, the historical profession uh, with its, its scientific norms, um, could exist in a free market. Yeah. So what I will point out is that there is a huge thirst for historical historical knowledge in the public. Yes. Uh, there, if you look at the bestseller list on Amazon yes. at any given time, there's always a history book at the top. People are buying at the market. Uh, Demand is there for history. We also know historical tourism. People plan entire vacations around going to visit the castles of Europe or uh, going to the Battle of Gettysburg or going to uh, all these famous historical sites uh, because they want to see it. They're spending money and they're, they're doing so uh, through market mechanisms. So the thirst for historical knowledge is very high. There are always popular uh, documentaries and TV show on historical themes that people watch all the time. They're some of the, uh, uh, the, the highest rated shows on television. Now, the quality is not always the greatest, but, uh, but there's an interest in doing Doing history. There's historical fiction. There are historical movies. Uh, all of that points to there being a market demand for history that's not being serviced by the academy. Because the other thing, if you look at all of these books that are on the bestseller list, they're not traditional academic works. They're works written by uh, historians that are, are generally operating outside of the academy, or if they're in the academy, they're they're writing for popular audiences, uh, not in these obscure journals. Uh, so what it tells me is that the history profession in academia uh, is separated and walled off and has self-isolated it from uh, the popular base of the cons- uh, consumers and the public. Uh, and part of this comes about because it receives government funding and government grants and government institutions that are uh, employing these historians. But uh, it also means that there's a missed opportunity here, because if you look at history majors and colleges, uh, they are one of the 
areas of the university system that's in the steepest decline over the last decade. Uh, so even though we have all these market signs that history is popular, people are interested in it, they want to study the past, they want to visit historical sites, nobody wants a college degree in history. And I think that becomes a clear sign that they view the type of history being done in the academy is off-putting. It's politically biased. It's obscurantist. It isn't relevant types of history, whereas what they're getting from the market via TV shows popular books, tourism, visiting historical sites is the type of history that people want to study and learn and read about. <laughs> and would you say, would you say, I'm sorry to, to continue, no, no, it's okay. what you say is very interesting. Uh, would you, so there is this appetite for uh, travel through through time, huh? this absolutely. Is, uh, Amazon bestsellers, visiting uh, historical sites, uh, museums. Uh, I think of the Museum of Versailles. Uh, absolutely, who must be making a, a lot of revenue, uh, thanks to 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 tourists. I don't, I don't have the number, uh, but. Um, do you think there is also a market demand for historical expertise? The most uh, demanded experts to talk about political uh, subjects are often historians, not economists. Yes. <laughs> whereas no, economists have the most ready-made solutions, whereas right. historians have generally no clear-cut solution to propose. But nevertheless, there is often this, um, the public is, is, is also looking for historian expertise uh, when, um, when debating about, uh, about common issues. And this is not so, uh, I mean, Academic historians do it, huh? to uh, to uh, to be honest in the, in the in the debate, but um, but probably it could be more. It could be more. Um, there could be more uh, story like you have history bestsellers on Amazon. You could have more historian advisors. Um, yeah. This was something that the Annal School, uh, when it was created by Marc Bloch and uh, Lucien Fevre in France, wa wanted also to, to, to promote the historian advisor. Um, so do you think there is a market for that as well? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it's a market that's not being filled right now in the sense because the academy has in some ways monopolized uh, that version of history. Uh, so the, the classic example I give, if you look to the Great Depression, uh, mm -hmm. People are always using that as a reference point whenever there's economic turmoil because it's the uh, the most significant one in recent history uh, that we all look back to. So what are the problems that caused the Great Depression? How did we get out of the Great Depression? Uh, that gives us advice on how to weather current day recessions and economic downturns. Uh, economists have very good answers on that. They've studied it empirically. Uh, they understand what caused the market crash in 1929, how that spread across the world, um, how things like the Smoot-Hawley tariff caused trade protectionism to sweep across the world. And then next thing you know, you're in uh, an international collapse of exchange and economic disaster. Uh, economists know this well. But historians do not. The historians have a, a political narrative where they say either Keynesianism or New Deal style spending got us out of the Great Depression. Uh, and then when they're asked to advise on what to do today, it says, well, just repeat what we did in the 1930s and throw money at it, uh, go into deficit spending.
so that there's a disconnect between what economists recognize about these events and what historians uh, believe about the same events uh, that comes about, I think, largely from the historical profession's uh, political biases. So, uh, again, what we get there is, is the problem is the, that uh, the wrong group of so-called experts uh are being deferred to not because they have the best answers and explanations of the past, but because they seem to be the most vocal and the most prevalent in the academy. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> Phil, it was it was a great conversation, starting Absolutely. with uh, Ludwig von Mises, um, then its misinterpretations that led us into a broader reflection on uh, on the historical profession. So, thank you very much, uh, Phil Magnus, for uh, for having uh, taking part in this um, in this uh, program and for having shared your views and uh, and your expertise on this uh, on this notion. Uh, that's greatly uh, appreciated. Thank you very much, Phil. Absolutely. And thank you again. Bye.